Hey everyone, welcome back to The Haunted Corner. I'm Ashton, and today I'm back with another Cold Case Corner. Today, we're covering cold cases from the state of Minnesota, trying to bring awareness to cases that are unsolved, maybe don't have enough information out there, so they're not getting a lot of attention. Let's get into it. Up first, we're discussing the murder of a man named George Jensen. George Jensen was born on December 6th of 1917. In 1979, George was living in Bloomington, Minnesota. He was 61 years old at the time and a World War II veteran. He had four children and was divorced. George was disabled from suffering a stroke about 10 years prior, which caused him to be unable to use one of his arms and one of his legs. He had been living in his trailer for about four years. He was known as a very religious man and cheerful and pleasant by his neighbors. But when his neighbors hadn't seen him for a few days, they began to worry and eventually called the police. Police entered the trailer and discovered that George had been brutally murdered. He was struck on the head several times with what investigators believed was an ashtray. He had been stabbed several times and was strangled with an electrical cord. George's car, which was a 1977 Plymouth Volare, was reported missing and then found two days later parked at the downtown bus transport hub. Prints were recovered from the car and DNA was collected at the scene of the crime, but there was very little to go off of at the time. George's son, Barry, started a petition to have the case reopened a few years ago. And according to the Facebook group, which is titled the Justice for George D. Jensen Project. As I record this episode, yesterday, someone posted in the group that evidence in the case is now being tested, and hopefully a DNA profile can be found. I will definitely be keeping an eye on this one. I hope they can get justice for George. If you have any information about the murder of George Jensen, please contact the Bloomington Police Department at 952 563 4900 or email police at bloomingtonmn.gov. Up next, we're heading back to 1974 in St. Cloud, Minnesota to revisit the murder of two sisters named Mary and Suzanne Reeker. There's a book about this case called Two Sisters Missing, the 1974 Reeker Murders by Robert Dudley. I used it as a reference in this case. This case is one of Minnesota's most notorious unsolved mysteries, so it tracks that I had never heard of it. Mary and Suzanne lived with their parents, Fred and Rita Reeker, as well as four other siblings at the time of their disappearance. Mary was 15 years old and attended St. Francis High School. Suzanne was 12 years old in seventh grade and loved tagging along to different places with her older sister. Their other siblings included... Betsy, who was 13, Marty, who was 10, Matthew, who was 8, and Leah, who was 4. It was Labor Day weekend, and the family had gone to a family reunion where Mary captured a butterfly. It was a typical late summer weekend for the family. On September 2nd, 1974, which was Labor Day, the sisters, Mary and Suzanne, decided to head to a nearby Zare discount store to buy school supplies and a winter coat. Betsy decided at the last minute not to go. The girl's mother, Rita, remembered, quote, I didn't want them to go very badly, but they needed some school supplies. They were going to be back quickly. 
end quote. Mary and Suzanne left their home at 11.10 a.m. on what would be about a mile-long 20- to 25-minute walk to the store. Mary was wearing wire-rimmed glasses, blue jeans, brown Oxford shoes, a short-sleeved white sweater, and an army fatigue shirt with reeker stitched above the left pocket. Suzanne was wearing navy blue corduroys, gold wire-rimmed glasses, a white cotton jacket, and low-cut boots. The manager at the Shopco store on their route saw the girls before noon. They stopped by the Shopco and spent a few minutes browsing the aisles before leaving and heading towards the Zare discount store. Around 1 o'clock p.m., the sisters chatted with one of their neighbors, a man named Jacob Younger, who was sitting at the food counter in the store at the time. Suzanne and Mary headed back towards the back of the store where the winter coats were located. As they were walking away, Jacob Younger recalled hearing Suzanne tell Mary, quote, I don't want to go with that man. I don't like him. Let's not. End quote. Her words struck Jacob, and he became even more concerned when he left the store and noticed a large, nervous-looking man sitting in a blue car, a Chevy Impala. Jacob decided to hang back and watch the man to see what he was going to do, but he eventually left when... Nothing occurred with the man, and the man didn't leave either. The sisters were last seen at the discount store at 1.30 p.m. When Suzanne and Mary didn't return by 6 o'clock that evening, Rita began calling neighbors and friends to see if anyone knew where they were or had seen them. Fred and their oldest son, Marty, drove to the police station at 7 o'clock p.m. to report the girls missing. Rita later stated that the family usually ate dinner around 5 o'clock, so when they weren't home for dinner, they immediately knew something was wrong. Police initially treated the case as a runaway situation, despite interviews with the family that indicated there had been no signs that the girls were planning to run away. A search was launched, and it quickly went nationwide. Bulletins and photographs of the girls were sent to all major cities in five upper Midwest states and to every state crime bureau. The parents were encouraged by police to go to the Greyhound station with pictures of Mary and Suzanne to see if anyone had spotted them. One of the attendants thought he may have sold the the girls' tickets, but it was discovered that it was not the sisters. It was two different girls he had sold the tickets to. Some strange things did come up after the disappearance. About two weeks prior to the disappearance, Mary had been babysitting for her aunt and uncle. She apparently demonstrated some urgency regarding being paid, asking her aunt several times to take her to the bank to withdraw the money and saying, quote, you can't imagine how much trouble I will be in if I don't get that money. This was shocking to Rita and Fred, of course but not as shocking as what was found in Mary's diary after her disappearance. Just before Labor Day, Mary wrote a diary entry that seemed to confirm her fears or that she was worried about something. It was the last entry she wrote. It read, quote, To my family, should I die, I ask that my stuffed animals go to my sister. If I am murdered, find my killer and see that justice is done. I have a few reasons to fear for my life, and what I ask is important. End quote. Nearly four weeks after their disappearance, on September 28, 1974, 
Two teenage boys were walking along the edge of the rock quarry when they discovered Suzanne's body in the tall grass. She had been stabbed 13 times. Mary's body was found on a ledge under 40 feet of water. She was nude and her clothes were strewn on a cliff as if they'd been tossed into the quarry. Mary had been stabbed six times. The girls' bodies were sent to the Hennepin County Medical Examiner's Office in Minneapolis for an autopsy and an and an investigation was launched by police. Investigator Lawrence Krichek took over as the lead investigator in the case, and he immediately pleaded with the public for their assistance in solving the crime. He told the St. Cloud Daily Times, quote, We are asking who was at the Zares or the Shopco between the hours of 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. on September 2nd to call us. We want to talk to everyone who was there, whether they think they have information to give us or not. They might have information we could use without knowing it, end quote. But investigators had very little information to work with. Despite a thorough search of the quarry by a team of 20 deputies, the murder weapon was never found. There were no family problems or problems at school. The girls were happy there. This clearly wasn't a case of teenage runaways, like police initially thought. The murders shocked the city of St. Cloud. They hadn't experienced anything like this in a very long time, and the entire community grieved for the young girls. A funeral was held for Mary and Suzanne on October 2nd of 1974 at St. John Cantus Church in St. Cloud. The St. Francis Choir, which Mary belonged to, sang at the funeral. Betsy and Martin, two of the girls' siblings, presented gifts during the ceremony, including Suzanne's violin, the sweater Mary was knitting, and the butterfly she had captured just before her death. The sisters were buried next to each other in Assumption Cemetery in St. Cloud. The autopsies confirmed that Suzanne and Mary had died from multiple stab wounds from a small double-edged knife. The bodies showed no sign of defensive wounds, which led police to believe it was possible there was more than one suspect involved. Law enforcement began to push harder for more information about the murders, and a reward fund was established that quickly grew to $10,000 after the large response from the public. Detective Krichek followed up on the leads that were received, and additional searches of the quarry were performed, including dives to look for the murder weapon. Community members helped in the search for evidence, including Jacob Younger, who burned through tankfuls of gas driving around searching for the blue Chevy Impala he had seen in the parking lot of Zares on the day that the girls disappeared. Several suspects were looked into in the years following the murders, one of which was Herb Notch. He was 17 at the time of the murders and had recently been arrested after he kidnapped and stabbed and sexually assaulted a 14-year-old girl. Fortunately, the girl survived, but Notch reportedly showed zero remorse for his actions. One of the boys who found Suzanne and Mary's bodies was named Russ Platts. He worked with Notch at Zares and recalled him behaving strangely, often, often hanging out in the parking lot on his days off and staring at the people who passed by. One day... Russ Platts asked Herb Notch about the murder of the girls. Quote, I said, Herb, did you know about this or have anything to do with that? I don't remember which way I worded it, but he went hiss. And that was the only response I got out of him. End quote. 
Herb Notch is also linked to two other murders of women in the 80s and 90s. And Rita Raker, the girl's mom, actually confronted 58-year-old Herb Notch on his deathbed in 2018. She was 82 at the time, and she wore a hidden microphone to record their conversation. It took Notch a few minutes to realize who she was, but... This is what she said, quote, he just pointed right at me and said, I give you my word, I didn't do it. He was totally in denial. I found him to be a very angry and very hard and very bitter person. There was no sense of remorse at all. He then told her, I'm going to hell. Herb Notch died a week later. There wasn't any evidence linking him to the case. However, Rita is convinced that he's the one who murdered her daughters. In 2014, a woman named Georgianne Dreher came forward claiming she believed that the person who sexually assaulted her at the quarry in 1974 was also responsible for the murders of Suzanne and Mary. She was new to the St. Cloud area around that time and approached a man to ask where the best swimming spot was. He told her the quarry, and the two biked together there, and on the way, the man told Georgian, Georgian about himself. His name was Lloyd, and he was a traveling carnival worker. After arriving at the quarry, the mood shifted, and he sliced her pants off with a knife before sexually assaulting her. Georgian remembered he had a scar on his eyebrow, and he talked about having a fascination with sisters. Fortunately, a car pulled up and she was able to escape. Within the following days, she learned about Suzanne and Mary's murders. Georgianne reported the incident to police, but they didn't believe there was a connection at the time. Now, fast forward, Georgianne set up news alerts on the internet for articles that included the name Lloyd and the words carnival worker. Eventually... She got a hit, this little internet sleuth. A report came up about a man named Lloyd Welch. He had been named a suspect in the disappearance of two sisters from the Washington, D.C. area in 1975. Sheila and Catherine Lyon had disappeared from the Wheaton Plaza shopping center just outside of Washington, D.C. in March of 1975, less than a year after the Raker sisters were murdered. Authorities released a mugshot of Lloyd Welch in 1977 to give an idea of what he may have looked like at the time, and Georgianne was immediately convinced that he was the man who had sexually assaulted her. She reached out to the detectives who were investigating the crime and gave an interview where she recalled the things he told her at the time of the attack. He discussed his girlfriend, Helen, and how she would travel with him from place to place. Some of the details she gave to authorities led to Lloyd Welch being charged in connection with the kidnapping and murder of the Lyons sisters. By that time, he was already a sex offender and a suspect in several other attacks. Georgianne was called to testify, but her testimony wasn't necessary. Lloyd Welch pleaded guilty to first-degree murder and was sentenced to 48 years in prison. Sheila and Catherine's bodies have never been found. Despite these connections, Lloyd Welch is still not considered a suspect in the Raker murders. He hasn't been interviewed in connection with the case. However, Georgianne has written to him in prison and even visited him, hoping he will eventually admit to the murders. 
In an email dated August 1st of 2020, an investigator told her, quote, the investigation of the Raker homicides points in a different direction than Mr. Welch, end quote. According to the Stearns County Sheriff, Steve Soika, the Raker case is still open, and anyone with information about the murders of Suzanne and Mary is asked to call the Stearns County Sheriff's Office at 320-251-4240 or the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension Cold Case Unit at 651-793-7000. The pro- program Spotlight on Crime is offering a $50,000 reward for information that leads to the arrest and conviction of the suspects. Up next, we will be discussing the murder of April Jean Sorensen. In 2007, April was a 27-year-old living in Rochester, Minnesota. She lived with her husband, Joshua, who worked for IBM at the time. She was a student at the Rochester Community and Technical College and was studying to be a dental hygienist. On April 17th of 2007, April worked an early morning shift at UPS from 4 to 8 a.m. She then attended class from 10 to 10.50 a.m. But when a TV technician arrived at her home at 12.30 p.m. for a scheduled visit, he saw smoke coming from inside the home and immediately called 911. After the fire was extinguished, April's body was discovered in her bedroom. An autopsy confirmed that she had been stabbed and strangled to death, and the fire appeared to be a way to cover up the evidence in the crime. The door to the bedroom had been shut, allowing the fire to destroy a ton of evidence. April's husband, Joshua, was questioned immediately, as well as the TV technician, but they were both cleared of any wrongdoing. Investigators retraced April's steps, conducted interviews, and collected DNA samples, but they weren't able to identify a suspect or anyone who would want to hurt April. No weapon was found, and DNA testing has yet to yield a match, but the case remains open to this day. A $25,000 reward has been raised in hopes to bring forward information leading to an arrest and conviction in the case. Following her murder... April's family hosted an annual memorial run from Albert Leah to Hayward to raise money to fund scholarships for area students and help maintain the Blazing Star State Trail. Anyone with information about this case is asked to call Sergeant Eric Boynton at 507-328-2729 or Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. And that's going to wrap it up for this month's Cold Case Corner. If you have any information about any of the cases we discussed today, please reach out to the contact information provided. It will also be listed in the show notes and on the blog post if you need it again. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. The sources for today's episode will be listed on the blog post for the episode at www.thehauntedcorner.com. Check out the other episodes of The Haunted Corner available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts with new episodes dropping every week. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to share your your support, head over to Patreon. You'll have access to the exclusive Patreon-only episodes that drop every week, early and ad-free access to the regular episodes, plus a lot more. Head over to patreon.com forward slash The Haunted Corner to join now. 
Follow us on social media at The Haunted Corner on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to tell a friend and rate and review wherever you listen. That really helps us. If you have a case suggestion, something you want me to cover on the podcast, or a correction about anything I've shared, please send it to thehauntedcorner at gmail.com or submit it through the website. Until next time, be kind and take care of yourself and each other, and we'll see you soon. Bye.